0: Welcome back everybody. You are listening to the Northern Miner Podcast and I am indeed your host Matthew Kevel. As usual we are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do surf by yukonminingalliance.ca to check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon territory. And we are back in studio here. I got a great episode lined up for everybody. Uh, Leslie will be swinging by with the latest edition of the Geology Corner wherein she sits down with Dr. Peter Magaw, uh, famously of mag silver. Uh, Dr. Magaw won the 2017 PDAC Thayer Lindsley Award for his work on the Juan Decipio Silver Deposit in Mexico, uh, which is now being operated by Fresneo. Um, and uh, Leslie will sit down uh, with Dr. McGaw to talk about CRD deposits, uh, about finding them, about their mineral value, and a lot of other fun stuff. So we will segue into that a little bit later in the show. Uh, I actually have another treat for us. Um, Frick Ells from Mining.com, a uh, a journalist I've worked with on many an occasion uh, and traveled with. We've been up to the Yukon together a couple times. Uh, We'll be stopping by studio as well to uh, sort of chip in for our uh, macroeconomic Part of the show. So he'll be talking a little bit about base metal complexes, a little bit about iron ore, copper, nickel, a little bit uh, of uh, platinum group metals because Frick is originally from South Africa. So he's got a unique uh, insight on the PGM market. So if you are a player in the base metals or industrial complex, stay tuned because this is your segment. Uh, And we're going to talk a little bit about macro politics as well. We'll get into China, we'll get into the one belt, one road uh, strategy and what's going on there. Uh, So that's going to be an awesome segment. So it should be a great show. Um, I will uh, get right into uh, the segment with Frick and then I shall return after the break to uh, segue us into Leslie's geology corner. This is Matthew Keeble with the Northern Miner Podcast, and today we're fortunate enough to be uh, joined by Frick Ells from Mining.com. Thanks for joining us, Frick. Hi there. Frick is a specialist and covers uh, metal prices. Uh, You know a lot about iron ore, uh, platinum group metals. Um, So today what we're going to do is dig into a little bit of macro, it sounds like. Um, Talk a little bit about uh, China. Um, a little bit about base metals in the industrial complex because that's something Frick's been covering quite a bit recently. Um, so, Frick, you were uh, mentioning off air here a little bit about um, sort of a new industrial zone in China, I think. And we were going to talk a little bit at the onset, um, sort of about base metal movement um, and what you've been hearing out there. Uh,
1: yes. Uh, so, obviously, with the summit, the One Belt, One Road has been in the news. Yeah. But um, it's, it's one of those things that. Uh, you know, it will take decades and decades to sort of flow through to real economic growth. And apart from that, uh, the whole initiative is already running into, into trouble. Um, there was uh, the port they were building in Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been halted. Um, so China's neighbors are a bit nervous about, you know, all the implications for it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, funny enough, got a, um, I think it was a note from Scotiabank this morning, um, mentioning the One Belt, One Road initiative, and they said it was, the, the sort of the momentum was starting to fade already. And yeah. they said, why? Uh, because the summer thinking funding constraints will bottleneck meaning, meaningful investment over the next few years. So, yeah. yeah, it's just a question of, it's one of those things where you see the metals complex react in such a way, yeah. and then people realize maybe it's more of a long-term thing than something that should be affecting short-term prices and we were laughing off air a little bit because we were talking about copper supply disruptions as well and how that yeah. was such a big story and yeah, yeah i mean
1: at one point it was uh almost 12 percent of global supply was yeah. was offline and i mean there was a spike but it didn't last very long yeah and we're back to 250 now yeah um, yeah and uh, the other thing that's also f- definitely fading into the distance, if you're talking about big infrastructure s- infrastructure spending, yeah. it's, uh, it's Trump. Um, and yeah. he's $500 billion or $1 trillion over 10 years, whatever it was. Uh, that is uh, looking more and more unlikely, or uh, at least not in, uh, in a form that will really help mining or yeah. copper or iron ore to any sort of extent.
0: Well, it's funny, uh, following campaigns and uh, some of those infrastructure promises mm-hmm. often seem to uh, sort of go the way of the dodo. I think we saw something a little bit similar with the Liberals in Canada uh, yep. where you had that uh, large promise of infrastructure spending. And so there was some uh, discussion, uh, uh, I, we go up to the Yukon been X- yep. up as well, a uh, discussion on what part of that in- infrastructure spending from the feds might go towards northern infrastructure, etc. Yep. And lo and behold, we're now a few, uh, almost two years in right and and nobody's really seen too much in that to that effect right
1: yeah and yeah. it was uh, i mean the the top line numbers were quite impressive um yeah. what, 100 billion canadian is not you know it's not chump change yeah yeah but i i read a fraser institute um piece on that yeah and they were saying only about 10% or 12% was actually going to go into roads yeah. and ports which is um, what we want yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah
0: yeah 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 and where was the rest going did you did yeah. they say where it was going
1: uh, amongst other's uh, addiction treatment centers yeah. uh, or sort oh. of initiatives and not even building centers just um i don't know
0: more people to help with with the problem. it sounds like government accounting a little bit yeah yeah, yeah, yeah no no it's it's quite funny how that goes and i mean um, we were talking a little bit about how, how big an impact China and the U.S. are having. And, and one of the spaces you do cover is iron ore and, yeah. f- and ferrous. And I think it, uh, that's interesting because um, from our point of view uh, in Canada, obviously, we don't maybe hear as much about that as you would in, say, Australia mm-hmm. or, or, or in that part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe a little bit of discussion on, on what is the iron ore market looking like right now?
1: Yes, well, things uh, uh, were great uh, starting around September last year. I mean against all expectations the iron ore price uh, came within shouting distance of of $100.
0: I remember that, yeah. Yeah. No
1: one thought that would happen, it, not even the producers. Uh, yeah. uh, so, um, but that is the, obviously faded now. Uh, we're back uh, around the $60 level and analysts are once again saying, uh, you know, we're heading lower. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a uh, it's just the basic laws of supply and demand. There mm. is just too much ore out there and too much ore uh, in the pipeline. It's not like, like you look
0: at some of the belts even remaining in Canada, and there's, yeah. there, there we saw what, maybe 2012, 2013, a lot of mm-hmm. even Canadian juniors forwarding stuff in yeah. the Labrador trough that has since sort of fizzed, yeah. fizzled a little bit. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, you've got Elderon uh, with the, the CAMI project. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. a 1.2 billion ton uh, resource. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, Canada is already the. Um, the fourth largest exporter Mm -hmm. of of iron ore and in australia um i mean I had somebody tell me it's uh, iron ore mining there is, is basically quarrying. Yeah. Well, I remember
0: <laughs> I read uh, that that there was a, some speculation that, that the iron ore price might react because of, uh, was it a hurricane they had down there along one of the coasts that uh, yeah, yeah that sort of disrupted some of the ports and stuff down there, and there was so much iron ore coming out of those ports that they thought it might actually have some impact yeah. on the price because they were closed for a couple of days, right? So it was, yeah,
1: and, yeah. Uh, but they, just like the Metco, which is now... Yeah. It turned at 314 after yeah. Cyclone Debbie. It's now back down to uh, below 150 yeah. or around 150. Um, so yes, you have these. You might have spikes but in iron ore. I mean, it's there's just so much out there. Mm-hmm. Even if you have a few, a couple of weeks delay or a week's delay, if there's some weather event, it's not going to make a huge impact
0: on on the actual spot yeah. price. Yeah, and it's funny because um, from that point of view, I mean, it's so sort of almost centrally controlled by such a small number of companies, right? The, the supply in, in many ways, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. well, uh, I have uh, I can remember re- last year, one of my headlines on our iron ore story was, uh, I called uh, the big three is basically OPEC on, on crack. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. they, they now supply, uh, and it's still rising, um, something like 85% of the seaborne market is between the t- I think it's the top four. You have yeah. to count Fortescue, yeah, as well. Um,
0: and so, who are those now? The top four.
1: So it's uh, Vale, yeah. uh, Rio, BHP, Fortescue. Fortescue. Yeah, and yeah. then um, Roy Hill, for instance. I think they supplied. They started up uh, early last year, mm-hmm. so they're going to go from zero in 2015
0: to 55 million tons. Wow! This year, yeah. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned um, sort of uh, metallurgical coal as well because that's obviously a huge topic in BC um, because of our our coal fields um, in the southeast. Um, And I actually recently did, uh, we've been working on some data journalism, frickin' myself both, um, and we were looking at some of the mines in BC and how, uh, you know, the exit of Walter and how the new Kanuma coal stuff is coming in and they're Mm -hmm. looking at reactivating some of these mines. But, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting because, like you said, that was based on a price that now... Is yeah. a bit softer. So, what are you hearing sort of on that Met hole side?
1: Uh, well, th- th- don't forget, uh, November last year, I oh, know, no- November 2015, we were looking at $75 a time. Yeah now we're at 150 so yeah, that's really nice yeah yeah, yeah. so i think uh, everybody thought 300 is not not going to last
0: unless you go to the cold conference then, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they were home, there there's a lot yeah. of, a lot of yeah. wishful thinking going on yeah yeah, yeah exactly. but
1: uh, but still it's it's uh you know it's a much better position than it was and i mean it's it's the it's top uh, resource owner in, in, in bc in bc yeah. as far as I know. so yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, no it's a big deal here and, yeah. and it's interesting to see that uh Because, you know, you you think about some of the headlining stories in BC. has been a lot about, you know, big copper mines that are being built or might be coming. But uh, people haven't talked about Met Cole as much. I mean... Uh, I guess it's It's largely controlled by tech, but at the same time, it's just an interesting thing to remember that it's such a huge job and economic yeah. driver in the province to this day, right? So.
1: Yeah, and I mean, uh, obviously, uh, tech is uh, diversified, but mm-hmm. um, their share price is up 85% yeah. over the past year, so Metco definitely plays, played a big part in that. major uh, role in that, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. And then uh, the other um, uh, sort of element that you cover, Frick, that uh, maybe we don't, Um, get as much I wouldn't say um, exposure to maybe is uh, the Platinum Group Metals area Um, and uh, you're you're actually are you you're from South Africa yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so so Frick's Mm -hmm. got the background where uh, as we know South Africa has historically been a massive producer of PGMs Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, maybe a little bit of talk once again I honestly we haven't heard too much there was a maybe I guess around the same period uh, maybe 3 or 4 years ago a big rush at Canadian you heard some Canadian mm. stories about uh new platinum um projects including obviously Ivanhoe and uh yeah. platinum group metals Mike Jones uh company down there with the mm. Waterberg stuff um mm. so w- w- maybe a little update just on on what you've been hearing out there about platinum group
1: Yeah well uh so South Africa controls uh 80% of platinum production mm-hmm. uh, 70 to 80% yeah Together with Russia, I think it's uh, it's eighty five percent. Same with palladium; it's it's just the other way around. Okay. So, Sibanie, um acquired the biggest uh, palladium producer outside Russia and South Africa. So, if effectively, South African and Russian companies are, have even a tighter grip on the market than than previously.
0: Yeah. But the the
1: PGM market is uh, it's it's living on hopes and dreams. It seems to me. Yeah. Yeah. Because sort of the fundamentals are aligned. Um, it's you have constant uh, tighter e- uh, emissions regulations, which yeah. obviously need more PGMs. Uh, you have uh, longer term projects like hydrogen cars. Even more platinum is needed. Yeah. Um, that you've had in palladium, you've had five years of record deficits in the market. Platinum is going into deficit uh, this year again. We had 2014 was a year where it was a five-month strike affecting, you know, the bulk of global production. I recall that. Yeah. 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 But you get spikes, but before you know it, you're you know you're back
0: in uh,
1: in triple-digit territory.
0: Yeah. Um So platinum is. Uh, and is what would you say is there just that much supply out there now or is it recycling or what would be causing that
1: uh, recycling uh, is an issue yeah. um, platinum specifically is, uh, um, is is diesel great yeah. in Europe yeah. I mean that's that's uh <laughs> that didn't help <laughs> yeah yeah
0: yeah. Good, old, yeah good old Volkswagen yeah yeah yeah, yeah that and didn't it's
1: help. I mean, th- it's not really been felt yet uh, because uh, I think diesel cars it, it record sales in Europe just because the overall car market was, was so strong. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely going to be felt, you know, in years to come. And um, a, a new research piece that I that I read said that it's only a matter of time for palladium to become worth more than platinum. Oh, because okay. Because palladium goes into gasoline cars. Mm-hmm. And obviously China and U.S. is dominated by, uh, by gasoline cars. So yeah. um, that's part of it. It's also the uh, market deficits. Mm-hmm. But there's always this uh, sort of question mark uh, in the markets about, yeah, above ground stocks. Supply security, right? Yeah. Like,
0: yeah. I, mean, I mean, South Africa especially. And, and you just simply don't see a lot of, of available deposits, right, outside of certain areas of the world. Right. Yeah, 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 it's uh, I mean it's it's it's
1: some of the most concentrated supply. I think mm-hmm. the UK um Geological Society did a study a few years back where they uh placed platinum as the most critical uh metal out there and the way they rank it was um concentration of supply and uh how much disruption uh uh the market will can endure and um you know the the lack of substitution in
0: many mm-hmm. many instances with uh, with platinum. Yeah, and um, I mean um, maybe just to end, Fricka, we can circle back a little bit to the industrial complex because obviously you've been doing quite a bit of work on it, um, and we get questions sort of every day like uh, about you know copper and and, and the base metals. Um, so maybe uh, like in your conversations, maybe interviews, people even talk to analyst reports. What are sort of the temperature you're hearing on the let's say midterm base metal complex? Um. Uh. Nickel is, a, is
1: clearly a bit of a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Indonesia and the Philippines, they supply 30% of the world's uh, uh, nickel. Um, okay. So whatever happens there uh, will have an effect. And they, the, opposite, uh, that, um, the opposite has happened than what uh, producers wanted. Yeah. And yeah. obviously, it, it's restarting in Indonesia, exports to China, the Philippines... Uh, they replaced their uh, mining uh, minister or environmental minister. Yeah. So, yeah. so the, the nickel is is flowing again. That's why the price is uh, back below nine thousand. It's another metal I haven't heard
0: too much about. It's in terms of, uh, I guess, marketing recently, right? So yeah. Not you don't hear a lot of nickel companies getting started up. Right no, anymore. no, yeah. no. The uh, yeah. The
1: Cash for new developments or exploration is not flowing not into nickel. I yeah. mean, we had the Birch Tree mine Just announcement uh,
0: yeah. yesterday or the day before. Yeah. Um, well, why don't you uh, actually, uh, uh, considering you guys covered that, why don't you fill everyone in on, on sort of what happened there?
1: Well, it's a. Uh, Valet is, is shuttering the Birch Tree uh, mine in northern uh, Manitoba. It's, it's a small mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's close to the end of end of its life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's only about six thousand tons a year. Oh, it is small. Okay. Yeah, it yeah. is small. Yeah. Um, yeah. But about it's two hundred jobs. Yeah. Still. No, that's the important part. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. And,
0: um, and they just they, that news just came down like two days ago, didn't it? Or, or I think so. Yeah yeah. 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 So that's unfortunate to hear for sure. And. Yeah. Um, I it doesn't look like the, from what I'm hearing as well, that the nickel's going to, there's not going to be a lot of relief in the short term here, really, right?
1: Uh, no, I, th- I think about, uh, they say about 25 to 30% of uh, global operations are unprofitable yeah. at these yeah. prices. So yeah. we're
0: likely going to be here, be hearing more of that, uh, not less. I so. keep hearing about copper that do that too, that, yeah. that about this, wherever we're sitting today, it's sub 270 probably that a lot of the uh, worldwide copper uh, operations there at mine costs are are a little bit higher than that. So uh, we keep yeah. waiting for these, these supposed copper closures. And it was funny, we talked at the onset about... Uh, the uh, supply disruptions and stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, But yeah, that, uh, that pretty much uh, wraps up uh, our segment for the day. Uh, this has been Frick Ells from uh, mining.com. Frick, thanks again so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks,
1: man. Great to talk to you.
0: And uh, we'll be getting Frick to sort of rotate in here regularly, mm-hmm. so we'll uh, get some more updates on what you're hearing out there in terms of uh, the base metal complex, PGMs, and uh, the mining world abroad. Yeah. Uh, so this has been Matthew Keeble with the Northern Miner Podcast. I'll talk to you next week. Welcome back to studio. I'd just like to take the opportunity to once again thank Frick Ells, editor at Mining.com, for swinging by to chat with us about the industrial metals complex. Uh, we'll try to get Frick in relatively regularly moving forward, just to get a few updates on what he's hearing about things like uh, iron ore, seaborne mech coal, uh, the PGM markets, obviously, as well as the nickel, uh, which is something we should probably uh, keep our finger on the pulse of as well. Um, so yeah, without further ado, though, let's uh, head on over to the geology corner. Uh, as mentioned, uh, Leslie will be talking to Dr. Peter McGaw of uh, MAG silver. Uh, Dr. McGaw is a PhD in geology from the University of Arizona and more than 27 years of relevant experience focused on silver and gold exploration in Mexico. Uh, As mentioned, he won the 2017 uh, Thayer Lindsley Award uh, for his work at the Juan de Sipio Deposit in mexico which is now operated by fresneo though mag silver does retain an interest but let's let leslie and dr mcgaw uh, open our eyes a little bit to the uh, wild world of carbonate replacement lead silver zinc deposits i will see you after the break (laughs)
2: Hey, this is Leslie Stokes, writer and geologist with the Northern Miner. Now on this week's episode, you better sharpen your pencils because guess what? We're going to go back to the classroom and get an education on carbonate replacement lead zinc silver deposits, or CRDs for short. So we're going to look at how they're formed, what makes them a desirable catch for explorers, and how explorers can find more of them. To search for these answers, I went to Mag Silver's office downtown vancouver where i met with one of the world's leading experts in crd deposits mr peter mcgaw
3: my name is peter mcgaw Um, i am chief exploration officer for mag silver and president of imdex incorporated which is a small private company based out of tucson arizona i'm co-founder of mag i'm co-founder of menorah gold I've been an exploration geologist focused on exploring Mexico for 37 years and I have a couple of exploration discoveries to my credit.
2: What you might not know about Peter is that he comes from a very, very long ancestral line of teachers and preachers. So being able to translate really complex subject matter into something anyone can understand is actually written in his DNA. And Then you combine that skill with, you know, having an expert background in science, and you have this powerhouse of knowledge that pretty much anybody can stand behind. The proof of concept being, of course, is Peter McGaw essentially developed the model for CRD deposits that explorers use to find deposits today.
3: Relatively recently, CRDs had a very bad reputation for exploration because people didn't really understand how they formed and that they do have mappable alteration halos, uh, which means we now have a whole series of characteristics we can look at that tell us whether one is more favorable than the other. The flip side of that is like all exploration worldwide, humans have been very effective at finding ore deposits that poked out on the surface. And so we are now increasingly looking for things that are either completely or partially covered And so we need to understand the regional controls on these deposits to get ourselves focused on belts where the best deposits are likely to occur and look for places where there ought to be additional deposits along those belts in place in parts of the belts that are covered.
2: So what exactly are CRDs and how do they form?
3: Okay, well, carbonate replacement deposits, which we call CRDs for short, Um, are, as the name would imply, carbonate-hosted. That means they're deposits that form in limestone or dolomite. Um, They're high-temperature deposits that are related to intrusives. High-temperature just means they form at over 250 degrees C, and that's from heat derived from the cooling intrusion. The name also implies they're dominated by replacement, which is getting a little more esoteric, but it's Replacement is a process whereby the ore fluids actually react with the limestone or dolomite, dissolve it, and that dissolution process changes the chemistry of the ore fluid so it dumps out the goodies that it's carrying, the silver, lead, zinc, copper, and gold.
2: If you're an avid follower of companies like Southern Silver or Arizona Mining, stories that we've actually covered at the Northern Miner in the past, you might have heard these companies report finding things like chimneys or mantos during their exploration programs. McGaw says chimneys and mantos are essentially geometric descriptions of the ore body, chimneys being more vertical and pipe-like, whereas mantos being more flat-lying blankets.
3: Chimneys are essentially high, mantos are essentially flat, and they tell you a lot about how the ore fluids moved. In a system that's structurally open so that the fluids can escape. Because fluids are always going to try to find the path, path of least resistance to escape from the heat of the intrusion. If the structures are open, they go up. If the structures are closed or if there's a seal on the system, they go sideways. So you have CRDs that are dominated by vertical fluid movement and CRDs that are dominated by horizontal fluid.
2: From a mining perspective, what would be the most ideal sort of geometry?
3: Well, the chimney geometry is probably the most appealing from a physical mining standpoint, because gravity is always working with you to bring the rock down. The flip side of that, though, is montos tend to be higher grade than chimneys. So per unit volume, you can commonly make a lot more money mining a manto than you can a chimney. So that offsets the convenience factor in terms of mining a chimney.
2: So in a nutshell... CRDs sounds like they need three major components. you got to have metal-rich fluids off-gassing from a deep porphyry system. You need structures to funnel those fluids. And carbonate-host rocks to trap them. So with this model in mind, where are the most desirable places explorers can look for them?
3: You have a porphyry-copper system that's emplaced into a carbonate sequence. Mm. You will form CRDs. So... Bingham Canyon, which is one of the world's largest porphyry systems right outside Salt Lake City in Utah, has huge replacement deposits. Grasberg has huge CRDs around it. The Cananea Porphyry in Mexico. I'm sure some of the porphyries up here in BC do as well, and CRDs are zoned to what we also call SCARNs, which is... The only real difference between a CRD and a SCARN is SCARN contains a bunch of calc-silicate alterations, so garnets and things like that that are caused by higher temperature alteration. Carbonate replacement deposits are still a little more distal, slightly cooler part of the system, but there's a zoning from an intrusion to SCARN to carbonate replacement deposits, and from an exploration standpoint, if you find yourself with a porphyry copper and a limestone, you should be looking for the CRDs and scarns, and if you find yourself with your hands on a CRD or a scarn, you should be looking for the intrusion, because if it's a porphyry, it could be productive. But a lot of CRDs, especially in Mexico and, and in other places in the Cordillera, the intrusion that they're related to is not a productive porphyry. So. Productive porphyry almost always has CRD if you're in limestone, but a CRD is not always related to a productive porphyry.
2: In Mexico, CRDs account for over 40% of the historical silver production, and they contribute a significant volume of zinc and lead, leading them to be really exceptionally valuable deposits. But why exactly are they so sought after? McGaugh says one of the reasons is because they're polymetallic. Almost any time in the market, at least one of the metals in these deposits would carry really high values, which helps even out the economics of the deposit over time.
3: Four or five features that make them especially desirable exploration targets. Number one is they're big. They can be 10 to 50 million tons. They're high grade, so they contain very high unit value of all of those metals we mentioned, lead, zinc, silver, copper, gold. <clears throat> Metallurgically, they're very docile, which just a fancy way of saying it's really easy to get the values out of them. And In today's world, another feature which makes them extremely attractive is they have a minimal environmental footprint, because you mine these things underground, a very high percentage of what you mine is what you're actually going to keep. So when it comes to waste disposal and things like that, you wind up with relatively small surface dumps and relatively small tailings impoundments. So long-term in terms of environmental mitigation, that makes them very favorable.
2: Even though they're super sought after, finding them, of course, is a whole other story. In the exploration business, companies often report, you know, those big red blobs on geophysical maps and uh, potentially some geochemical anomalies and surface samples. But how accurate are these techniques and what works best for CRDs?
3: The most reliable technique for CRD exploration is boot leather geology and getting out and mapping the alteration and the distribution of mineralization and controls that you can see on the surface. Uh, Obviously, as I just said about exploring through cover, that falls away fairly quickly when you don't have uh, the ability to see and and put your boots on the ground. There are a number of geophysical techniques that are useful for mapping the systems but few of them are particularly useful for identifying mineralization directly. And that's actually true of most geophysically based exploration or geophysics applied to many deposits, with the exception of deposits that have enormous halos of pyrite around them that respond in certain ways magnetically. In many cases, geophysics is most useful for mapping out structural controls, which is just a fancy way of saying the plumbing of the system, and the stratigraphy, which is the host rocks. And when you can narrow down the interface between the plumbing and the host rocks, then that narrows the gap for you for exploration and narrows the targeting.
2: So say if a company already has a CRD deposit what are some signs that they may have a potential monster-sized deposit on their hands? And McGaw told me it's actually rather simple. You just got to look at their drill core.
3: The big systems, for example, are multi-phase systems. So they have multiple generations of mineralization dumped out in the same place. And you can look at the mineralization and see evidence that this happened and says so that just tells you this is a place that you want to keep investing the millions of dollars in investment that it's going to take to make a major discovery mag silver is committed to exploration and crds is one of the deposit types that are best developed in mexico and what we're we've got a pretty good track record of finding i mean we used all of the things i described earlier in terms of understanding the regional localization to get focused in an area and then found a very large and blind CRD system. Um, We're still working at getting back on the surface there, but we have several other projects that we're looking at. And in the process of doing that work, we've come up with new ideas that have led us to some slightly different structural trends that we think may be productive for us.
2: So for more information about MagSilver's projects, head on over to their website. In the meantime, super special thanks out to Dr. Peter McGaw and Mag Silver for joining us this week. And thanks to you guys for listening in. Looking forward to chatting with you next week. Have a great one. Bye.
0: So once again, thanks to Leslie and Dr. McGough for putting together that great segment on CRDs, carbonate replacement lead zinc deposits. Uh, We will continue to bring you that cutting edge and exclusive geological content at the Geology Corner. Uh, But for now, uh, show is slowly wrapping up here. Uh, One thing I wanted to mention in terms of our Yukon Minute, thanks again to our sponsor, the Yukon Mining Alliance. Uh, I had a piece of news come across my desk last week. Uh, People may have caught this G4G Capital deal about six months ago, uh, now named White Gold Corp. uh, TSX. VWGO. Uh, This was started with a suite of properties uh, prospector Sean Ryan put together in the Yukon's White Gold District. Uh, Agnico bought in via private placement at the onset of the deal, now owns about 20%. Uh, Last week, May 18th, uh, news came across that Kinross was actually vending its White Gold project into this vehicle as well. Uh, So now we have um, Agnico and Kinross both owning nearly 20% of this White Gold vehicle. Um, And uh, people may remember, uh, this was a little bit of a a long time ago now i guess uh when i just started at the northern Miner, actually are around there uh kinross acquired the white gold property uh in april 2010 um from a uh via the friendly takeover company called underworld resources uh this deal was at the time valued about 140 million canadian and nothing much came of it uh people uh, uh might remember the golden saddle deposit uh kinross did do a little bit of drilling uh, subsequently but uh the project was well relatively um uh Uh, shut down over the uh, intervening years so it's interesting now you have Agnico Kinross and Goldcorp all milling around sort of in the central white gold area Uh, caught the coffee deposit Goldcorp picked up off Kamenak for just north of 500 million is also in the region Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this sort of uh, progresses moving forward obviously a lot of this ground is greenfield Um, uh, Sean Ryan is is well known for putting together these large uh, packages based on soil geochemistry Uh, so it'll be interesting to see that's just another piece of uh, Yukon news that slid across my desk uh, last week um, but yeah so that does pretty much uh, wrap up the episode for the week please remember to like us on Facebook follow us on Twitter check out our YouTube ta- YouTube channel and uh, please do like this podcast on iTunes because that helps us out a ton uh, but once again this has been Matthew Kievel you have been listening to the Northern Minor podcast and I will look forward to talking to you next week